Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 2 is going to kind of be the base passage. And as you are getting located there, I've been asked to make maybe a couple of quick housekeeping um, announcements. One is that if you are here and you're a pastor, you are invited to grab your lunch downstairs and then meet us in the Annex East you, you can be the queen of the double wide trailer, just parked right next door to the building here, and we'll meet in Annex East. And you know, the idea was uh, maybe we could share um, missions ideas and missions functionality uh, among us as a group of pastors to kind of see how different churches approach different aspects of missions. And so uh, if you are here and you are a pastor, one of the pastors here with us, you're invited, grab your lunch, get out to the Annex East with us if you would like to. Um, Also, um, you know, one of the guests that we were to have here this week was uh, Pastor Brett Bartlett. Uh, His his father is um, basically hospice care. And uh, so it was impossible for him to come, but I wanted to mention that so that you could be in prayer uh, for Brett and and Kim and for the kids and for their family and for Brett's brother and uncle and uh, others as they go through this time. So so Philippians chapter two, and you know, I know many of us uh, sometimes feel like we have come out of a movement that stopped moving and the history of us Baptists is maybe not very good on that standpoint. And um, you know, we, we are like this, and especially in a conference like what we are having here, what happens is, We're all about the where. Because these type of conferences challenge us and we wanna wanna get to the where. God, where? Just where where do you wanna send me? I wanna go just where. But the problem is you shouldn't get to the where, be worried about the where until you are the who. If you are not the who, well, I don't think you have any business going to the where, I'm just saying. But in order to get to the who, you need to back up to the what, and the what is worship. Now you might say, well, uh, uh, you know, why, uh, why do you say that? Why shouldn't it be the where, and I'll be the who by going back to the word, and yet you and I probably both know numbers of people who were uh, at the word, and yet it turned out they were not the who they were supposed to be. And my contention is, it is because they didn't go back to what the foundational thing should be, and that is worship. So I hope this is an epic session for you that will change the direction of your life, and not not just today, not just right now, but this entire conference. 
And our problem is many times we miss out on worship. And so let me give you an experiential exegesis of missing out on worship because first off, I can remember my parents or maybe you as a parent saying, and this is number one, if you don't eat your dinner, you won't get dessert. I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced that blackmail or not. And as you get older, you start thinking, well, you know, if you have to bribe me, maybe it's not worth eating. I, I'm just saying. And, and then second, on the other hand, not only in the culinary arts do we observe this, but number two, many times a spouse might say, do this or I will not love you. And we've come to believe that when the other person does what we want, well, then that's what really matters. But that is not a healthy relationship and actually withholding love until your expectations are met are murderous of intimacy. So, so in the final analysis, this is number three, the church. We have known churches who have said, don't do this or you're not spiritual. I mean, I, I grew up in a youth department like that. If you went to movies, you were not spiritual. But then I observed that movies that were shown in church were called films and that was spiritual. But because of that type of thing, we miss out on the wonder of worship. So I want to make sure we do not repeat the mistakes of churches have made in the past. And our youth especially, I think, need to understand this and see it as coming from the top. And so uh, before we get to Philippians 2, returning 2 Timothy chapter 3, I just want to share a few thoughts about being a worship-driven fellowship of churches after all worship is the first goal of discipleship. And it's not because we made up those goals. Uh, it is because we observed them in exactly what Jesus did with his men. And so after he, I mean, first thing after he calls them to be with him, he takes them to a wedding. And at the wedding, he does not perform a miracle for, for the masses. He does not perform a miracle to prove that he was Messiah. What he did was to perform a miracle for his men to prove that he was the Son of God worthy of their worship. So as a Living Faith Fellowship, we've got worship baked into our DNA. And when it's baked into our DNA, it results in some distinctives. And what are the things that make us distinct? And we mentioned this before, so I just want to hit this really quick. Living Faith Fellowship distinctives. Number one, we have a faith-based view of the Bible and everything that means. And at the bottom line, it's the idea of biblical authority. You see it here in 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is, wait, wait for it, given by. It's given by. Now, all scripture means each and every word, but check this. Uh, scholars tell us that phrase given by inspiration was likely a term coined by the Apostle Paul because they can't find it anyplace else. In all of Greek literature, it was invented by Paul because it describes how God mediates his authority through his word and how God mediates his authority through his word is not the way we humans think of authority and authoritatively, because we humans like to act in a very linear binary fashion with X's and O's and checks and Cheerios. 
And garbage in always equals garbage out. But because God is God and he can die and still be God, and he can make a rock so big he cannot move it like your free will, and yet still be God without violating his sovereignty, and he can take human garbage instruments in, and, and, and while it is just passively sitting there, through the process of the Spirit's work and wind on the words, he can give us the certainty of the words of truth out. And we don't like that idea because we Americans are the new Romans and everything is either right or left. It is either on or off and it always moves in this predictable linear fashion. And God says, you know, I overrule that. You cannot predict me. And that is exactly how I give you scripture. I use wicked Jehu to rewrite Jeremiah. And I use wicked Henry VIII to approve English translations of the Bible. And I will use quirky, coercive King James to bring one English authorized version. So the question is never, you know, is the King James inspired because the prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The only question for any translation at any time in any language is, is it scripture? And if it is, according to what we see in God's hand in history and the, and the evidence and the alternatives, then we know where to find the certainty of the words of truth. We know God has given us a book, not only totally sufficient in itself, but it defines life. It defines everything around us. So how are we different from other places you can get biblical fellowship and education? Well, second, since we have a Bible, we employ it uh, uh, using a faith-based use of the Bible. And that means three things primarily. First, we've got a biblical philosophy of ministry. Uh, we, are, we are biblically baptistic in our theology, I guess you could put it that way, and unashamedly unlegalistic in our methodology, and the gospel and the word of God are the central things, so we don't let side issues distract us. And then second, letter B, we have a biblical philosophy of discipleship, and Pastor Sam Miles will tell us about that tomorrow. And we establish the believer in, in the worship of God, the word of God, the local church and ministry with us. And because of that fourth, fourth goal, then as a fellowship of churches working together, we have a Living Faith Bible Institute. And third, let us see, we have a biblical philosophy of training, equipping, and sending leaders. And Pastor Jeff Bartell will tell us about that on Wednesday because every member of our local churches should be and see themselves as a minister. And that means our churches own the responsibility of missions as well as education for equipping people to become leaders of leaders if they stay and equipped to go if they call, if they are called. Now, is that you? If that's you, then join us. So in terms of a fellowship of churches with a common authority, common goals, common mindset, our Sundays are defined by the same practice as Earth's earliest Christians. It starts off singing love songs to the creator of our lives. And let me give you a counseling tip at this point because this is why worship has an essential role 
in your wholeness and in your health because you were designed by God to worship him. I mean, how strange. We sing, just like today, we sing, then we preach. But you know, that comes from the pattern of synagogue worship, which came out of the temple worship, which came out of God's revelation in the Bible. Because we step into the future when worship leads the way. So what your soul longs for, you will receive when you open your heart to a posture of worship. Worship will posture your heart to have hope and to find the healing that you have always needed. So it is worship that makes us a fellowship of living faith, working in love, holding hope to the world of Christ's soon return. So step into these moments when we sing together and then go out and serve together. Step into that space where there is worship and you breathe in life because your soul was created to live in a transcendent space where you and God connect through his spirit and his kingdom becomes your principal reality. And that means, and this is my first point for study today, the Bible is to be read not merely because it is descriptive, but because it is prescriptive. So it's not just that the author is telling us what happened. I mean, since the Bible is the word of God, it is God telling us why things happen and how they are to affect our lives together. So here's what I believe about the Bible and it's contrary to what you hear in evangelicaldom today. I mean, in most churches and from most pulpits, even though they preach the gospel, they will say the Bible is not sufficient. And I'm like, wait, well, wait. God and the word of God are inseparable. I mean, I can list place after place where the same things are said about the word of God as what are said about God in the Bible. And since God and the word of God are inseparable, and since we believe God is infallible, then this is my second point for study. To say the Bible is insufficient is to say God is insufficient, and I cannot walk with you that far. But because many people today have bought into the modern idea that the Bible's insufficient, then they downplay and sometimes even mock us. And I think they do not understand us because uh, what biblical authority really means, and this is my third point for study, what it really means is that the Holy Spirit makes Bible reading personal preaching. Because every child of God is able to find himself in and read the Bible as personally for him or her. God and the word of God are inseparable. And a lot of evangelical misses that entirely. But that means the word and worship are likewise inseparable. And a lot of Baptisthood misses that. So that's why I'm able to take a passage like what we're going to look at today and answer a question like, well, why worship as related to a movement of churches like ours that is focused on the word? And this relates directly to you and not just to our fellowship, because here's my thesis. We cannot have a worship driven fellowship if you do not have a worship driven life. 
I mean, what is mission focus? It is no good to challenge you for the where if you are not the who. And you cannot be the who if you do not back it up all the way to worship. So I want to start today with what I felt for several years but not said. And on the way again to Philippians 2, go by Galatians chapter 2 with me. Let's just do a drive-by by Galatians 2 because what I find is if a church does a series on success, I mean the sanctuary is packed. And if we talk about how to achieve your goals and your dreams and unlock your potential, well, then the seats are full. But sadly and sorrowfully, no one today is excited about being worship-driven. And that's so sad because let me hit you with this definition. Being worship-driven is where you start living your life by an internal compass of character and faith not circumstances and feelings. See, watch, Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're not supposed to live our lives as if we are the ones who must win the war. And then yet that's what we've been taught in so many churches of our ilk. You, you, you can't go to movies because then you'll be holy because it's on you to win the war. So make sure you keep this list of various taboos that we've raised because we can, we can actually achieve these things and we, when we do it, we, we, will, we will feel spiritual. Uh, you know, it, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's what that ends up with. We end up believing in God, but then trusting in ourselves. We're supposed to live our lives knowing Jesus has already won the war. We do not have to scale the walls. All we have to do is recognize worship is our power to make them fall because Jesus has already conquered. So worship-driven is where you, start, you stop making an analysis of the letter of the word, the dominant thing alone, and you start adding your faith responses to it. That is maturity. It's where you don't just put fact over feeling, which is the start, but you link character and faith together as your compass because it is your faith responses to God's word that creates Christ-like character. It is living by the Son of God's faith. It is his faithfulness inside you and your active obedience to it through the movement of the Holy Spirit in your character, in your personality. It is progressively sanctifying yourself and setting yourself apart from who you were born to who you were born again. And that is the only way to be holy without the legalism that breeds carnality. Because worship is the source of spiritual life. Now on the way to Philippians 2, let's do a drive-by in Revelation 15. We humans are supposed to be transcendent beings, you know, not like apes and gorillas, uh, you know, trapped inside, a, inside space-time with a spirit but no soul. 
When God breathed his spirit into the dust of Adam's body, it created a living soul designed to exist from then on with the creator of the universe. That means we're designed to live in space-time, but we are not trapped by it. Uh, Worship breaks the trap as we are connected to the one who is infinite and eternal. And that's God's eternal purpose, according to Ephesians 3, verses 10, 11, and 21. God's eternal purpose is to connect you with him in glory, beyond space and time, through redemption by his son Jesus and being a member of his body. Now, I know you don't believe me, but I think, you know, I've been told you believe the Bible. So look at Revelation 15, verse 3. And they, speaking of the saints of all dispensations, then in heaven, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. You know, this is the end game. This is God's eternal purpose. This is what he intended all along to glorify himself by his son Jesus through what he does in his body through your church. And that's why the mission is what it is. Because the mission is to see that all nations are compelled to worship when they finally see God's works and God's ways in us. All the nations will worship God when they see why he is doing what he has done with us and, and, and in us and through us and through our focus on his mission. And so that is why we must be a worship-driven fellowship. Philippians chapter two, worship is intimacy that frees us from the prison of a fallen creation and ushers us into the presence of the creator. We can then live in his creation as the new man that we are in Christ. Because while it seems like the person who is proud and cocky and arrogant always wins, the worship-driven path is brokenness and humility. So, Alan, why do I want to take that path today? Well, first off, first reason is this. This is number one. So you can be the person that God picks. So you can be the person God calls. I mean, there's something inside all of us that fears being picked last. We want to be picked first. I mean, don't you want to be the person God trusts with a big dream? Because he intends to do it. But he wants to do it through you. Do we not want to be the fellowship with the big vision because we have a big God and we want to honor him? And if revival is ultimately the sovereign will of God, even if we never see it, then don't we want to be able to say, Lord, but I sought it. Maybe it was not your will. Maybe for whatever reason you didn't give it, but Lord, we sought your face for it. We knew it was the end of the church age. We knew everything was going to pot, pun intended, and, but Lord, if you're going to give it to anybody, give it to us. Pick us. Choose us. If I had one week left, let it be seeking and serving God by worship. 
We don't deserve it. I mean, I'll be the first one to confess. We don't even know what we're doing. And, and, and let all the rest of the Living Faith Fellowship Board say amen. We don't even know what we're doing. But we believe it glorifies God. And this is the way to become the kind of person God chooses for his team. He looks for the prime characteristic of being worship-driven. Watch, Philippians 2, verse 1. If therefore there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, so because there is, because you have all of this supernatural help on the inside, fulfill ye my joy, which is that ye be like-minded, which means having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now we'll know we have that whenever nothing is done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, that phrase lowliness of mind is translated by the James gang, humility of mind. In Colossians 2.18 and verse 23, it's rendered humility. In Colossians 3.12, humbleness of mind. In 1 Peter 5.5, clothed with humility. So how will that be seen? Verse four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The tangible manifestation of humility is valuing others over yourself. And did you know even that is a legitimate expression of worship to our king? Because that is exactly what he did. Counting them, considering them, taking off your robe, picking up your wash basin, tying a towel around your waist, and thinking them higher, even surpassing yourself. And so what we see in Jesus is how worship is ultimately expressed by putting yourself in a worship posture as someone who serves. See, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, presenting your body a living sacrifice is your reasonable service. Someone who serves. You should want to be the person God picks because your ultimate act of worship is service in humility. The humility to make your life a sacrifice in fellowship with Jesus. So why set yourself today to take this path with us in 2020? Why have this vision, this 2020 vision? Well, second, number two, to be the leader God uses. Jesus reframed what it means to be human. Jesus redefines for us what leadership looks like. If you take heed and you mark their need, you are leading like Jesus. If you are soul conscious of the lost, if you are seeker conscious of a visitor, if you are spying out the things someone else needs to grow, uh, and this submission to lordship works out in relationships, it rides on the relational rails that ministry runs on. So watch, verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which he was, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
He didn't start off like them before this happened. No, he was God before this happened. But once this happened, well, he was found in fashion as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here's our fourth point for study. In Jesus, we find the ultimate manifestation of being worship-driven. And if we follow it, God has to give us revival in order to honor his son. He, he always honors anyone that he sees who looks like his son. But we are tempted to see what Jesus did as a contrast to who God is. Jesus humbled himself to become fully human with us. He left his majesty to become a servant with us. But what we think that implies is that God was experiencing something new. That God had never known what it means to sacrifice or be a servant and himself to give worship. And yet being worship driven becomes the highest virtue. You know why? This is number three. So that you can take the only path that God himself has taken. You know, our feelings usually always betray us. Our thoughts sometimes betray us. <clears throat> but because our thoughts are based on, you know, Greco-Roman and not biblical paradigms, then our theology also betrays us. From Greek to Roman mythology, from the gods of the Egyptians to the Norse gods, they were all an expression of our longings and our lusts. And all those gods were a mirror reflection of us because really we want power and we are sometimes furious. We need wisdom and knowledge, but sometimes we also need magic and superpowers. So from Odin to Zeus and Neptune to Hermes and Ra to Zarathustra, they missed the one true God, the God himself driven by worship. So Jesus reveals something new he is more than omnipotent with all power. He is more than omniscient with all knowledge. He is more than omnipresent in every place. What Jesus reveals is God himself is the purest expression of worship, which means Jesus, as God with skin on, reveals to us what a true leader looks like as the servant who loves. But more than anything else, he reveals to us something about God so provocative, it changes our view of God everywhere. Because God is not only more powerful than us, and God is not only wiser than us, God is more of a worshiper than us. Because God is far more humble than us. Wait. And I know you struggle with that idea, but okay, well then why didn't God stop sin and Satan at the initial rebellion? Why? Because of his humility. That's why true worship requires humility. And that's why revival is predicated on brokenness. Your personal revival, the revival of the church as a group, it is predicated on living crucified in Christ. 
Because that is the aspect of God we least desire. So we betray ourselves when we want God's power or we want God's wisdom and we do not want God's character, we do not want Christ's likeness. Because here's my fifth point for study. Jesus gives us the only right mind. And this passage alone should solve all your questions about whether or not Jesus is God. And, and God is one God and three eternal co-equal persons. Verse six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. <clears throat> He didn't have to chase it like Lucifer, the light bearer. He could be worship driven without denying any of his, any aspect of his other attributes. I mean, even Einstein discovered that all matter is really energy at a slower speed than light. And since God is light, in order for him to matter, he had to slow down and make himself subject to space-time and be consumed by, be conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And what came out was still human and yet divine because it was given by inspiration. And what was given by inspiration had to grow in stature with God and man to be mature and perfected. And since he could be worship driven without denying any aspect of his attributes, then verse eight, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Keep a finger here, go quickly, Matthew chapter 11. What other path could the God of love take than to be worship driven and serving out of humility? So why am I urging you to commit today by taking this path with us? Well, this is number four, to choose the heart of God. Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm a rabbi, learn of me. You know what? I'm not gonna ask you to roll out all of the Talmud scrolls and study the sages and all their commentaries and the jot and the tittle of, you know, here's what I want you to do, because I'm meek and lowly of heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn to be meek and lowly. That's when you'll find rest to your soul. And that is a counseling tonic, and that is, that is your prescription today. Uh, not only is the Bible sufficient, it solves your anxiety attacks and cures your PTSD when you take it and apply it to life in this way. Well, what does it take? Well, Jesus says, learn from me. That means you learn how to do this, not just by reading about it. You learn it by following his example. Why? Because the heart of God is gentle and humble. This is who God is. is. This is why he's worthy of all our worship. Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12. God is a God of worship. If God is the servant, if Jesus came and materialized in the very essence and nature of the heart of God, then the answer makes sense when you ask, to whom does God bring revival? What kind of people does God trust and pour himself into? Well, the only answer is the kind like Moses. Numbers 12, verse three. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. 
Go with me to Exodus chapter 10. Moses was the person who expressed the greatest humility on the planet because that quality of worship was most reflective of the character of God and the image of Christ. And there's another reason to take this path. It's number five. Number five, to have the power to face the abusers, the arrogant, the wicked, the oppressors. Exodus 10 verse three, and Moses and Aaron came unto Pharaoh and said unto him, thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Hebrews chapter 12, go to Hebrews 12. The word serve in another place is translated worshiper. And of all the other crimes that the tyrant Pharaoh committed against humanity, God's indictment was because he would not humble himself and allow God's people to go worship. So watch, Hebrews 12, verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Do what? I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing? That's like the indomitable weapon. Well, let us have grace. I mean, since we got a kingdom like that, let's have grace so that we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And if you look at that word serve, out in the margin, you can write the word worship because that is how the James gang translates it in other places. Choose grace so you can worship because to do service is to be a worshiper. So hear me clear, God will never reject you because you are too messed up. God does amazing things with messy people. He takes our brokenness and heals it and uses it. God will not oppose you because you are a failure. He will not set you aside because you are chipped. He will not reject you because you're not intelligent or not talented or not trained enough. But God will shelve you if you are not worship driven. Because watch, this is my sixth point for study. Jesus never rejected the sinful, but he always rejected the arrogant. It brings so much pain to God when we would resist him when he was the first one. He was the one who humbled himself first. He humbled himself in not stopping the rebellion and allowing his creation to be completely marred. He served, putting himself in the posture of worship to bring us back to him. Toxic churches make you feel like God is good, you are bad, try harder to please him. Religion says try harder, you're not good enough. But it is demeaning to you and dishonoring to God for you to think that way. You can only please God by faith in his grace, in the finished work of Christ operating on your behalf. God is love, you are broken, and Jesus died. Because it is only the merits and benefits of his prior act of worship that could redeem you and make you a worshiper like him. So in this kingdom, the seat of least honor, which, cho which chooses humility and servanthood and sacrifice, that is automatically the most honorable seat. And this is our seventh point for study. God is humble. And because we're created in his image and likeness, our souls thrive 
when we humble ourselves and worship. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And yet no one has humbled themselves before humanity more than God. So God stepped down from his throne. He entered human history. He laid down his life for us long before he asked us to do that for him. So in the final analysis, we choose this path, and this is number six, to take a partnership with Jesus. Turn to John chapter 13. God never asks you to do anything for him or for others that he's not already done, even more so for us. So if we want revival, we have to choose a worship-driven life. Those are the ones to whom God entrusts his power. Because he knows that if you don't start with the where, that if you are concerned about the who, and therefore your beginning point is worship, then you will use the power responsibly to serve. And we see this materialized in the person of Jesus. Watch verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Judah, uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, which is another passage that settles for all time, the deity of Christ. We, we did not come from God, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and it wasn't until after the cross that we actually go to God when we die, but we do that now. And, uh, you know, just let me give you a bonus, uh, apologetics type of bonus. How do we know that the soul and spirit, how do we know that human consciousness is something that exists separate from your body and your physical existence? How do we know the mind exists separate from the brain? Well, because of identical twins. I mean, this is easy. Identical twins are basically two cloned people. And while nutrition or environment may, uh, you know, alter the expression of some of the DNA between them, they share the same genes, the same DNA code, and yet they are two separate souls, two separate people. And the two separate people, you know, the fact they're separate people has nothing to do with nutrition or environment. You are a soul which has a spirit in a body, but Jesus was a singular son who was with God before his birth, came to seek and save, and after the grave went back to his father. And even after Jesus knew, all power had been put back in his hands. And whatever he decided is what was gonna happen, he took this next step, verse four. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel wherewith he was girded. You know, they're extremes because you can think too highly of yourself or you can reject God's path by thinking too little of yourself. Worship-driven humility sits in that tension between acting like you're God and remembering you're created in his image. So worship is a strange dynamic, but it's displayed right here. How to perfect it, displayed right here, verse six. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash, up, wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do, thou knowest not. But thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Jesus, you will never serve me. You will never be lower than me. I cannot allow you to put yourself in a position of worship to me. Because that's what worship is throughout the Bible, is prostrating yourself. It is touching the feet of someone else. And Jesus says, look, unless I choose the path of worship and ministry and sacrifice, you can't have any part with me. Verse 9, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, no, okay, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not, to, not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. We're, we're talking about being a worship-driven fellowship, but there's a step before that. You've got to let Jesus serve you. If you, you have to recognize you're not worthy of such affection. You do not deserve his love, and yet you do accept it. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Jesus asks only for what he was willing to give, and he gave more. He gave a righteous, spotless life in worship, and he asked for your sinful, broken life as he took our sin on himself in his death so that we would not die in our sins. And because God always exalts the humble worshiper, the story concludes in Philippians 2, verse 9. God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You know, we must let it be known that God is a God of humility. God is the one who is the servant who has worshiped. God came and sacrificed himself on our behalf to wash our souls, to make us clean from the inside out of all of our darkness, all of our sinfulness, all of our brokenness. Jesus did this for us. And if you do not choose to humble yourself in worship, first off the word while it may make sense to you it will it will really not produce in you anything that will be worth taking into eternity god gave the word not for you to study it but but so that it could engender living faith what you discover from the scriptures is Humility is a choice with balance. If you don't choose to humble yourself in worship and leave it in God's hands, uh, you're not in the right spot. Now, I understand to do that is called, you know, if you choose to do it, it's called worship. If you don't choose to do it, it's called humiliation. But the amazing thing about walking in worship is you can never be humiliated. And it is here that we find the pathway to revival and the foundation of the worship-driven life. Do you want to be the person that God uses 
Choose to serve, and this is our final point for study, because when you choose to become worship-driven, you choose the Christ-likeness that opens the door to enable the Holy Spirit's gifts in revival. Our English word humility is related to uh, humus, uh, dirt, the ground. When God decided to create a creature in his image and likeness, he took the most common element on the planet. So when Jesus came and walked, washed the disciples' feet, took our pain to bear our sins, allowed himself to be crucified, forsaken by his Father. How does that happen? That the Son, who is God, cries out to the Father, who is God, and says, why hast thou forsaken me? But those were not new choices for the God who is real. Humility is the highest virtue because worship is the highest power. Jesus can be trusted with all power because the only thing that restrains him is his character. And his character is one of humble worship. If you want God to trust you with the plans he has for your life, and the power of the Spirit to accomplish them in a slice of his mission and place you in his eternal purpose, then decide today to be just like him. So let me, let me give you today's takeaway, and then we'll raise up out of here. Number one, worship. Make sure you're a member at a church where you can be a complement to that body because you're serving. Second, sacrifice. Commit to their services. Defer other things to make a worship-driven life, and third, serve. Join a team at your church. Don't volunteer, stop volunteering, join a team. Even if the task seems beneath you. Some people have come to this conference so broken, you thought you could never be whole again. Some people come to this church, just like my church out in Blue Springs and other churches represented here with so much anger and bitterness and baggage. But even when they don't know if they believe in God or not, they begin to sing and, and to worship him and they see God and they hear the gospel and they open their heart to Jesus. They worship him and they begin to find the life that they thought was so elusive because something about worship got to them. People can argue against God with all their intellect, but when they see people worshiping God in life, it pricks their heart. Then grace takes over through discipleship and they begin growing. Then faith takes over in a mission focus and truth brings light into darkness and into despair and sets them free. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Gird yourself with a towel. Take up a wash basin and worship. Lead by putting yourself in the posture of going lower. Don't look at me. There's nobody that does it worse than I do, so do not look at me, look at Jesus. Look at Mary Magdalene, because what Mary did for Jesus in anointing his head with expensive ointment, washing his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair in worship is the same thing he did for his disciples. 
Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Sometimes, you know, we get to be a discipler and we get into discipleship and we get this attitude and we're, we get so strict with other people and there's, there's, you know, there's no exceptions to the rules and it, you know, it just goes like that. And then we've, we've, we've taken the heart out because there's no worship. We're not willing to serve. We're not willing as a discipler to see ourselves serving the disciplee and maneuvering them into the spot they could be. Our churches need your sacrifice. We need you to tithe. We need you to bring your friends and invite the lost. I want you to reclaim the lost image of God through worship and by the sacrifice and service that expresses true worship because none of us would even, even exist without the humility and the humble worship of God. Father, we thank you today for the ministry of your word and the presence of your spirit. Father, I wish today that I could be the chief worshiper. Yet so much I feel just like the Apostle Paul, the chief sinner. And Lord, the only way I know to mediate that tension is with exactly what Paul said. Lord, you're willing to count us faithful, putting us in ministry. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve the opportunity to serve, much less the calling to lead. But Lord, by your spirit, you are moving on hearts and you are calling. Lord, help us not misunderstand. Help us be clear on what you are calling us to. And that is first to start with worship. We ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.